Parsha Bamidbar. And what better place to start than the very first Pasuk? I'm not even going to continue the Pasuk. Not important. We got, we got it with the first verse, right? If we never learnt anything else, we'll still have learnt something today. What does it mean? God spoke to Moshe, to Moses, in the wilderness of Sinai. So you know that uh, in English, um, and by the, in fact by Chazal, in the Talmud and Midrash, this book, the fourth book of the Torah, is referred to as Sefer HaPikudim, in English, Numbers. Why? There's two counts, one at either end of the book. One at the beginning, which was the very first um, count after the Mishkan was, was erected. Okay, so they put up the Mishkan and now they counted the Jews. And um, at the end, again, Parshat Pinchas, before the Jews um, began their preparations to go into the land of Canaan. So it's called Numbers because it's sandwiched between two um, censuses, is that the right word? Where they counted uh, the number of Jews, that were roughly the same number on both occasions. Um, and then there's a lot of information in Bamidbar, in Numbers, about the formation of the Jews as they travelled. And then there's a big discussion about what happened during their travels. It covers roughly 38, 39 years of that uh, moment in our history, although 38 of those years we know nothing about. So we know what happened with Korach, we know what happened with the Meraglim, and then there's total silence for 38 years, zero information, and then comes to the end when, uh, you know, we talk about Miriam passing away and Aaron passing away, and then Moshe gets ready to pass away, he appoints a new leader, etc. That all comes up right at the end of Bamidbar. Uh, and then there's the story of Pinchas, which obviously I have a personal fondness for, because that's my name. But the point is that this book really covers that period in history. So it covers this 40-year period between the time they built the Mishkan and the time they began their preparations and actually the battles that were required in order for them um, to gain uh, a hold of the Holy Land. The conquest began. Okay, so why is it referred to as Bamidbar? In Hebrew, we always refer to this book as Bamidbar. What does Bamidbar mean? In the wilderness. So the answer is, like, simply because the very first word in that's a relevant word, a noun, at the, at the beginning of the book, is the word Bamidbar. It seems arbitrary. So Numbers is a more suitable name. And okay, so if you look at the other books, you'll see the first book is called Bereshit. Why? Because the first word of that book is Bereshit in the beginning. The second book is called Shemot, because Eilesh Shemot Bnei Israel, right? Those are the names of. The third book is called Vayikra. Why? Because Vayikra is the very first word of that book, Vayikra. Um, El Moshe, God called out to Moses. The last book is called Devarim. Why? Because Ele HaDevarim. These are the words that God spoke to Moses. And this was, or that Moses spoke to the nation, sorry, when he gave his final few speeches in anticipation of his own passing. So Bamidbar seems to fit into that pattern, which is that it's not, it's not, it's not to do with the content of the book, it's much more to do with the fact that it appears, this word appears in the first line of the book. And therefore we refer to it as Bamidbar. But it's an arbitrary word. It has no relevance in terms of the content. That would be the indication. In fact, Bamidbar is different. So even though it is referred to by Chazal as Sefer HaPikudim, the book of numbers, which is how we refer to it in English, Nevertheless, Bamidbar has a deeper connotation. So I want you to look at the Midrash. This is source number two. It's an extremely unique Midrash. You're going to think you understand it. And you're going to understand when I start talking that you really didn't understand it. Okay? So the Midrash says as follows. Call me. Whoever does not make themselves like a desert, that is Hefker. I'm not translating the word Hefker yet. 
אינו יכול לקנות את החוכמה והתורה. He's not able to acquire wisdom and Torah. Why? לכך נאמר במדבר סיני. Do you know why the book begins במדבר סיני? To tell you that if you don't make yourself like a midbar, then you are not doing it correctly, you're never going to acquire wisdom, you're never going to acquire Torah. Suddenly, look at, first of all, this midrash makes no sense. How do you make yourself like a wilderness? I wake up this morning, I have a cup of coffee, okay, what are you doing today? I'll tell you what I'm going to do today, I'm going to make myself like a midbar. What are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. How am I going to make myself like a midbar? So you're going to answer, you answer the question is going to be, but I want to acquire Chochmah, I want to acquire Torah, otherwise if I don't become like a Midbar, how am I going to do it? Yeah, okay, so press the button, become like a Midbar, you're going to look like the Sahara Desert. If you press a button, it doesn't work that way, so what does it mean? And it doesn't just say Midbar, it says Midbar Hefker. So what does that actually mean? Okay, but really what the Midrash is doing is answering a question which I didn't refer to, but which is a crucial question, and that is, Why mention the location at the beginning of the book? Who cares? We know that they are in Midbar Sinai. Where else were they going to be? Where did they receive the Torah? Mount Sinai, where was that? Midbar Sinai, right? Where were they when they built the Mishkan? In Midbar Sinai. So why do I need to be told that that's where they were? Well, where do you think they were? They went on holiday to Hawaii? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So the book begins with a piece of information that's completely irrelevant. So of course the Midrash feels compelled to answer that question, which is, why mention something which isn't relevant? By the way, the Pasuk continues by saying that he spoke to Moshe, Vayedabe Hashem and Moshe, after it says, Bemidbar Sinai, it says, Ba'ohel Mo'ed. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Where did God speak to Moses? In the tent of meeting. He spoke to him from the heart of the Mishkan. The words Bemidbar Sinai are not relevant. They are superfluous to this Pasuk. In which case, not only are they superfluous in the middle of some parsha somewhere, this is the very first reference to something, to a location in a book of the Torah, which is why we refer to it as Bamidbar, says the Midrash. It's not a random piece of information. Do you know why this word appears here at the beginning of the book about the history of the Jewish nation during this crucial period? To tell you, you need to be like a Midbar. Conditioning for transition. Some type, yes, it's some type of conditioning that is required of every Jew at that time, but by the way, going forward as well. So you and me, we're not, um, uh, we are not excluded from this definition. We must all make ourselves like a Midbar Hefker in order to acquire wisdom and Torah. So now the challenge over the next few minutes, up to an hour, is to find out what it means to be a Midbar Hefker. I want to share that information with you, and I'm going to do my best through the sources that I've picked to create some type of foundation for this concept of making yourself like a Midbar Hefker. That's the introduction. Let's go on to source number three. So the Etz Yosef, he was a commentary, a rabbi who wrote a commentary on the Midrash, and he, has a particular interpretation. I've, I've translated it. We won't read the Hebrew. I'll just read my English translation. What does it mean? What does the Midrash mean that, that when it says, that unless you make yourself like a Midbar, you will not be able to acquire wisdom and Torah? This means to say, says the Etz Yosef, that he is not concerned for his physical needs as a result of his devoted attention to Torah study. In other words, put aside your own personal requirements. If you want to acquire wisdom, don't be concerned for your personal needs because that will distract you from what you actually need to be doing, which is acquiring wisdom and Torah. A person is required to negate himself for the words of Torah and to be low and humble, to learn from everyone and to teach everyone as Torah is never found among those who are conceited. In other words, somehow this concept, this idea of Midbar Sinai is not a random idea. It's something which, which um, cuts to the very heart of Torah and wisdom. In order, and we're going to come back to this point, 
in order to acquire wisdom and in order to acquire Torah, put yourself out of the equation. Ego and the physical needs of a human being in order to get to that level. The, by the way, that doesn't mean you shouldn't eat and shouldn't drink. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about becoming a monk or a hermit. That's not what, what it means. That's not what the Torah is about. It has to be secondary. How many times have I said to this group, in a relationship, how, what, what is the definition of a successful relationship? I always tell young couples that come to see me before they get married, if only, if only they'd listen, if only I'd listen to myself. What, what is the definition of a good relationship? Where both parties in the relationship make themselves number two. That is the definition of a good relationship. If you want a relationship to work, you've got to be number two. And the other one's got to be number two as well. Right? For you, they are number one, but for themselves, they're number two. What happens if you have a relationship where you feel like number two and the other one feels like number one? Not so good. It doesn't mean the relationship will fail. It just means it's not a good relationship. If both parties in a relationship feel like they're number one, the relationship is doomed without any question. In other words, if you're not able to put yourself as number two in a relationship, it cannot work. The relationship will not work. What the Itz Yosef is saying here is in our relationship with Torah and wisdom, make yourself number two. You need to be number two. The Torah is, is a giving thing. Chochmah is a giving thing, but only if you're ready to receive it. If you're not ready to receive it, you know, I I'm, I'm use this metaphor all the time. You've heard it before. It's, uh, is the glass half full or half empty, right? I'm going to change it slightly. What's better? Think in Greek philosophy terms. What's better? A full glass or an empty glass? Your automatic reaction is, your human instinct is, a full glass is better. Not at all. An empty glass is better. Why? Because you can fill it with something. You can choose what goes into it. You need to be an empty glass. If you're going to acquire wisdom, you always need to be an empty glass. The moment you're full, there's no room for anything else. There's no room for anything. Now, if it's half full, then you've only got room for half. Do you get it? Yes. So if I'm thinking now in Greek philosophy terms, not thinking in the way we instinctively react to things. A full glass is a mistake. An empty glass is great. Okay, you like it? Okay. He's talking about being hungry, the humble, and therefore hungry, or hungry, therefore humble for the knowledge. And going to the second reference, he talks about desert versus wilderness. We cannot be dry and dead as a desert. As a a desert, desert, yes. We have to be in the wilderness, which provides the pastures. It's yeah, not no, okay. and, uh, um, and by the way, yes, the, I think the metaphor of wilderness, desert, whichever we're going to call it, is a place which is devoid of the ordinary trappings of life. Whatever those trappings may be, of course, every wilderness has an oasis. Sometimes those oasis turn out to be a mirage, right? But essentially, a wilderness is a place which is devoid of the normal trappings of day-to-day -day life. You don't live in an urban environment. You don't live in an agricultural environment. You're in a place which is zero environment. There's sun and there's earth. That's what there is. Now, what are you going to make of that place? Now, in physical terms, maybe nothing. But in spiritual terms, in intellectual terms, it's the, the uh, opportunities are endless. Endless. That's the whole point of a wilderness. You are, it's a blank page. You're writing the story. That's what the Eitz Yosef is saying. Okay, let's look at another Midrash. Um, this one is on Shemot, and it's to do with Mount Sinai. What are we about to do? We're about to have Shavuot. By the way, Bamidbar always is the parsha before Shavuot. Okay, always. It's a, even though it's a leap year, makes no difference. The Bamidbar is always the parasha before Shavuot. Listen to this fascinating midrash. I'm going to read it to you in the English translation. Said Rabbi Avahu in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, when God gave the Torah, no bird chirped, no fowl fluttered, no ox bellowed, the angels did not fly, the seraphs did not utter the Kedusha prayer, the sea did not roar, the creatures did not speak, the universe was silent and mute. 
And then the voice came forth. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. To the exclusion of everything else, any distraction, no digression, I am the Lord your God. That is the power of the wilderness. The power of the world. You know, what is the biggest problem we have in modern life? I don't think it's a new problem. It just maybe has increased. You know, I done it in shul in the morning. What happens in shul in the morning? Well, Baruch Hashem, not on Shabbos, but during the week, everyone's looking at their phone. Okay, so hopefully they're all looking at a Siddur because they've downloaded the Siddur app on their phone. They're all looking at their phone. So are they talking to God or are they looking at their phone? What is it? You know, you're talking to someone and uh, you're trying to have a conversation with them. And they're not looking at you, they're looking at their phone. Imagine God is talking to us. We're not talking about just a conversation. God is talking to us and we're looking at our phone. Can you imagine a thing like that? So when God gave the Torah, how was he going to ensure that we weren't looking at our phone? Metaphorically, right? He needed to do it in a place where there was literally no distractions. There we were, us and God, God and us. No birds chirping, no oxes bellowing, no creatures talking, even the angels in heaven are quiet. Because any distraction is going to draw us away from this primary function of the Jewish nation, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God. It's such a powerful idea. I wasn't there. I mean, of course we were there, Anoshama was there, but in a physical sense, I wasn't at Mount Sinai. But just the image of a place of complete tranquility, of, of no distractions, is something that's so powerful in terms of us understanding what is required of us in order to have a relationship with Torah and wisdom and God, because that's what the relationship with Torah is about. Now, I've, I've put here two quotations. The next two um, sources are quotations from famous 20th century travelers. We don't really have that anymore. Today, you know, people write blogs, but they don't just have, they don't have the same sophistication of the writers. You know, if you read, uh, um, you read uh, uh, Mark Twain, was a seasoned traveler in the 19th century. He wrote, you know, travel diary of all the places he visited. It was eagerly read by people in the United States who never left their home counties, literally, right? This was a normal thing when, before there was ubiquitous travel, you know, jet planes and whatever it is, people would go around the world and they would write reports from the places they'd been. And it was exciting for people because they could visit those places without actually being there. So these are two famous writers from the 20th century. The first one is Paul Bowles, and he wrote a book in 1963 called The Baptism of Solitude, okay? And he um, visited, uh, at that time, Saudi Arabia, but the Arabian desert. It only became Saudi Arabia when the Saud family uh, took over that particular territory, but it was Arabia long before it was Saudi Arabia, and it's mainly desert. That's what it is. It's very similar to the Sinai Desert, which we're familiar with through the Torah, um, in terms of it having been the location where the Torah was given. Listen what he writes. Oh, here he's writing about the Sahara Desert. Immediately when you arrive in Sahara, for the first or the tenth time, you notice the stillness. An incredible, absolute silence prevails as if the quiet were a conscious force which, resenting the intrusion of sound, minimizes and disperses sound straight away. Then there is the sky, compared to which all other skies seem faint-hearted efforts. Solid and luminous, it is always the focal point of the landscape. At sunset, the precise curved shadow of the earth rises into it swiftly from the horizon, cutting into light section and dark section. When all daylight is gone and the space is thick with stars, it is still of an intense and burning blue, darkest directly overhead and paling toward the earth so that the night never really goes dark. And he continues, turn the page, page two. Being there, just think of the Midrash we just read when you, when you listen to what he is saying now. Being there is a unique sensation 
and it has nothing to do with loneliness, for loneliness presupposes memory. Here, in this holy mineral landscape lighted by stars like flares, even memory disappears. A strange and by no means pleasant process of reintegration begins inside you, and you have the choice of fighting against it and insisting on remaining the person you have always been or letting it take, or letting it take its course. For no one who has stayed in the Sahara for a while is quite the same as when he came. I believe actually that Paul Bowles ended up living in Tangier. He, he was not, I think the next writer, Wilfred um, Teziger, was the one who lived in Saudi Arabia or visited Saudi Arabia. And he was a, uh, a seasoned traveler through North Africa, Paul Bowles. Listen to what he says about silence. The power of silence, real, true silence. Not the silence of there just wasn't noise for 10 seconds. Re a place which is governed by silence. And this last paragraph is going to become very relevant in the last piece that I've put here in our source sheet from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Let's read the next piece from a seasoned traveler. This one, Wilfred Teziger. He was the one from Saudi Arabia, Arabian Sands, a book he wrote in 1959. In the desert, I found a freedom unattainable in civilization, a life unhampered by possessions, since everything that was not a necessity was an encumbrance. I found, too, a comradeship inherent in the circumstances and the belief that tranquility was to be found there. I learnt the satisfaction which comes from hardship, and the pleasure which derives from abstinence, the contentment of a full belly, the richness of meat, the taste of clean water, the ecstasy of surrender when the craving for sleeps becomes a torment, the warmth of a fire in the chill of dawn. Everything becomes important when you have nothing. Why should you make yourself into a midbar hefker? It's Yosef said, because if you come with any presuppositions or any preconceptions or expectations or entitlements, you're never going to gain wisdom and you're never going to gain knowledge. You'll never acquire Torah. Torah requires shaking off everything, like Wilfred Thetiger, who's in the uh, Arabian desert, or like Paul Bowles, who is in the Sahara desert. We get the sense of what a of what a midbar hefker means. It's a place which hefker, which I didn't translate er, uh, earlier, means nothing, ownerless. You don't have ownership of it. You have nothing there. That's what a midbar is. You, don't, you can't put a fence around a, a midbar. Even if you put a fence there, it means nothing. Because you own nothing, because what's inside the fence, how is that different than what's outside the fence? Nothing, there's no difference. No boundary is going to make a difference in a, in a wilderness. And that's who we are. We create boundaries around ourselves, right? I am this because I'm not that. I expect this because this is what I deserve. What about the other guy? It's not important to me. But in a desert, we're all equal, which means every experience you have is so powerful, so incredibly powerful. Says God at the beginning of Bamidbar, which is the period of time when the Jewish nation gained its identity through mistakes, through good things that it did. Throughout that entire time, remember, you're in a, you're in a Midbar, Midbar Sinai. That's where you are. That's where you receive the Torah. It's a place where there is nothing to teach you a sense of who you have to be in order to ever have something. Now, of course, there are points in one's life when we do gain possessions. But we always have to see those possessions in the context of a midbar hefker. Because if you remain a midbar hefker, while at the same time you have things, suddenly you have a sense of what those things really are. You know, I have a, uh, my brother, uh, he passed away in a car accident many years ago. He was 45 years old and he was an extremely bright man and as a young man he was I think 28 or 29 maybe 30 he became extremely wealthy you know he was ex very successful in real estate in the UK became very wealthy 
and we came from a rabbinic family. He went to my grandfather, he said, how should I behave? I'm just, you know, I never grew up with this level of wealth. What should my behavior be? What should I do? What advice can you give me? So my grandfather said to him, just remember, you're a poor man with money. And if you remember that, if you remember that, you'll never lose sight of what it is that you are and what you need to do. You're a poor man with money. He was telling him, this Midrash, you're a Midbar Hefker. Now it could be the Midbar Hefker has money or has things. But you're still a Midbar Hefker because if you're a Midbar Hefker, the possibilities are boundless. But if you're not a Midbar, if you're a full glass, then you, there's no possibilities. You're done. You, it, it's over. Acquiring a Torah has nothing to do with your possession. So from a spiritual perspective... You're going to see that the Lubavitcher Rebbe says something even more. Something even more powerful than that. You're, we're thinking so far in terms of physical possessions. I have a car, I have a house, I have a, you know, I have all the things, I have a nice watch, I have whatever it is that you think in your mind. We're not even talking about that. We're even talking about intellectual possessions. Okay, let's... Using you again, uh, vocabulary, if I may, it's about forgetting self, uh, forgetting ego for self or over self, depending who talks, to be able to perceive that God is our God, to hear, to feel the eternal truth. You have to have a sense of who you are and who you are not, more importantly, in order to gain a sense of God, which is what the Medrash that I read a little earlier was about. No chirp, birds chirping, no animals making any noise. You have to have that sense of tranquility in yourself in order to gain an understanding of God. By the way, so many people who pray to God come to Him with their, all their baggage. They're not really praying to God. It's all about them. I need this, I need that. I need emotional support, and I'll get that emotional support through praying to God. They don't have a sense of God, they have a sense of themselves. How do you really gain knowledge and Torah and their relationship with God? Is putting yourself on the side for a moment. That's not to say that God doesn't want you to ask him for things, he does. That's not the point. But the point is that relationship can only be enhanced and really have meaningfulness if you are a Midbar Hefker. Let's just look at the next piece by the Sfat Emet, number seven. One more thing. Sure. Um, it depends which sources we are uh, quoting because of their opinions, which says that we have that knowledge. We just, because of the pragmatic world, it's clouded and we are and we get distracted and therefore we cannot delude it. So by going to the desert, by living the circumstances which sharpen but we don't live in the desert, so the whole point is you need to make yourself, yourself, you need to be as if you're in the desert. Let's read the Sfat Emet. I've, I've translated it. In the Midrash, the Torah is compared to the wilderness, in that one needs to be hefker, free, unattached, ownerless, like the wilderness. The Midrash tells of a prince who entered one city after another, only to see the people flee before him until he came to a ruined city, like a Midbar, where he was greeted with praise, said the prince. This is the best of all the cities. Here I will set my throne. You see this metaphor. Why does God come to this earth? He doesn't need to come to an earth where everybody has everything. He comes to an earth where there is nothing. The word Midbar comes from a root meaning to lead or rule. The Midbar is one who acquiesces to that rule. That is to say, a person should empty himself such that he has no strength or initiative save for the life force of God. So the Sfat Emet has taken this even to the next step, that every sensation that we have, every desire that we are familiar with, is actually not a relevant thing in terms of us gaining a true appreciation of what it means to have a relationship with God. The more you bring yourself to the table, the less you're going to gain at that table. You're going to gain nothing. Look at the Maharal. I didn't translate the Maharal. Maharal says, Lamadnu ruchanit. What is the Torah? The Torah is essentially um, a spiritual creation. 
מחוץ למושגים הגשמיים שלנו, outside of the natural physical things that we are all familiar with, it's not something which can, we can relate to through the five senses. It's something which is beyond the physical sensory uh, um, stimulus, stimulation that we are used to. אם האדם רוצה להצליח לקבל תורה, So what, do you want, what are you going to do if you, want to, if you want to receive Torah, if you want to be able to gain Torah knowledge, become a Ben Torah. You have to reduce yourself like a Midbar. It's only if you're putting yourself in that situation that somehow you might be able to gain the Torah, which is beyond the physical senses. הדרך לקבל תורה אמיתית, רוחנית, שהיא דבר השם, the way to gain the true Torah, the spiritual Torah, which is the word of God, not the intellectual information. The Maharal is making a differentiation here. Intellectual information, I can give you information, I'll remember it, I don't remember it, whatever it is, right? We're not talking about that, we're talking about the essence of Torah. How do you gain that? It's not tangible. There's a difference between studying Uh, you know, the Talmud, because it's information, and studying the Talmud because you want to gain the spiritual energy that is contained in the Talmud. How do you do that? We're not talking about Torah, which is simply the creation of a human hand. That's not what we're talking about. Just the product of somebody's Uh, um, physical mind, as it were, material creation of the Torah. That's information. It's brilliant. By the way, you can listen to a, a, you know, a dialectic Torah discussion. It's fascinating. Even if you know nothing about Torah, you're not Jewish, you're not spiritual, it's a fascinating discussion. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about gaining the internal uh, spiritual sensation of Torah. How do you do that? Um, in other words, bal netiyot, without any distractions, negiot ishiyot v'ta'avot, or personal, um, thoughts of personal gain, or whatever. I want, I want to acquire Torah because it's going to make me clever. I want to study the Talmud because it's brilliant stuff. That's all we're talking about. Hi ach v'rak im ha'adam yima'et atzmo v'da'ato b'fniyah v'yaseh klik kibul b'fniyah. The only way to do it is to reduce yourself internally, to reduce that side of you which requires this, you know, physical, material stimulation, and to make yourself available to receive the spiritual. Um, not a personal gain type of uh, um, personality. I'm not doing this. Yes, by the way, I may get personal gain. That's a side product. I may get... intellectual information which is extremely stimulating, but that's not the reason I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I want to get closer to God. This is the vernacular of God. This is the language of God. This is the way I can connect to God through the Talmud. That's why I'm studying the Talmud. If there's intellectual stimulation that goes alongside it, that is a bonus. It's cream on the cake, but that's not the reason I'm doing it. We need to recognize that which we lack in ourselves. Why do we have the Torah? The Torah is not there so that we should become very clever. The Torah is there to fill a hole in who you are. There's a vacuum inside of you. It's called a spiritual vacuum. How are we going to fill that vacuum? This is the metaphor which I mentioned earlier, the empty glass. How am I going to fill the empty glass? You can fill it in all kinds of ways. Fill it in this way. Find the Torah that is going to fill you in this way. If you imagine for one second that you are complete. I don't lack anything. I'm a brilliant, perfect, you know, put together guy. You cannot be completed. It's not possible. And that's why Chazal said in Pirkei Avot, 
תוך ממחת דברים שהתורה נקנית בהם, among the 48 things through which you can acquire Torah, המכיר את מקומו, he who recognizes his true place in the world. שאין האדם כדאי לקנות את התורה זולת, שיכיר חסרונו. It's not possible for a person to acquire Torah unless he recognizes that which he lacks. This is the point. The point of the Torah is to fill a vacuum, a spiritual vacuum, not an intellectual vacuum. You want to become spiritual, you want to be connected to God. God gave us a guide. He gave us a portal. That's the best word to use. There is a portal to God. It's called the Torah. But you're never going to get through that door. You know what the key is to that door, how to open it? Is by recognizing... That without going through that door, you're never going to get that which you need and which you require. What an incredible metaphor. All from one word at the beginning of the book of Bamidbar. Could have said, and we would have been fine. Says the Midrash, no, it says deliberately, Bamidbar Sinai, the word of God, the Torah, wisdom can only be acquired through the medium of a Midbar. The Maharal was man of his time and period, right? He lived in Prague. Prague, that's right. Alchemist. Yes. And the proverb till today is, you will find the truth in the place where you least want to look or you are least capable to look. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The Maharal was, was, was focusing on a very uncomfortable reality. You know, we all want to be in our comfort zone in everything that we do. You know, in family, in relationships, in business, in work, in when we go into the bank or the store or the, you know, Ralph's, right? We all want to be in our comfort zone. We create little comfort zones around ourselves. Actually, the whole point of the Midbar is, this is what um, Maharal is saying, is even when you're in your comfort zone, you're not really in a comfort zone. You've created this illusion of a comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone. Get into the Midbar, because if you really want to reach who you really are, you're only going to do that through the medium of the Midbar. It's not going to happen otherwise. Recognize you're never really in your comfort zone. The comfort zone is an illusion that you've created for yourself in order to feel in a comfort zone. But it's a, it, you're playing mental games with yourself, right? Get out of that prism in order to gain the truth in order to get to that real destination where you need to go. Now let's look at the Mechilta. The Mechilta is another Midrash. This is in Shemot. And this, this really, I should have said at the beginning, I've left it for later in the Shi'ur because it's a fascinating question and answer. Mipnei ma lod Torah Israel? You ever thought about that? But you never asked that question. Why wasn't the Torah given in Israel? Why did it need to be given at Mount Sinai? We're now coming up to Shavuot. It's a brilliant question. If the holiest place on earth is Temple Mount, what they should have done is gone from Egypt, come straight into the land of Canaan, gone to the top of Temple Mount, and there God should have given them the Torah. Why wasn't the holiest gift that God gave us, the Torah, not given to us in the holiest location of the physical, in the physical world. That's where it should have been given, says the Mechilta. So that the nations of the world would never have the ability to present the following argument. The, the reason why we never accepted the Torah was because it was given in their land that was promised to them covenantally to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses. That's why we never accepted the Torah. Because had you given it at another place, we might have accepted the Torah. But, ha but you didn't give it. You gave it in the land of Israel in that imaginary scenario. So in order not to give them a good argument to reject what the Torah contains, it was not given in the land of Israel, says the Mechilta. Davar acher. Shelo lahatil machloket ben hashvatim. So there should be no argument between the Jews. You see that? The Mechilta is sensitive to the fact that, you know what Jews do best? They argue. Imagine it would have been given 
in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is half Binyamin, it's half Judah. So maybe Benjamin and Judah would have been able to say, oh, the Torah was given to us, but wasn't given to you guys. One might say, ah, the, the Torah was given to me, it was given in my place, I'm better than you, I'm whatever. You can imagine the arguments that might um, unfold as a result of that. You know where it was given? In a place where no one has ownership. It's Hefker. No one has ownership. No one can claim the Torah was given in my place. It was given in everyone's place. Neither the nations of the world can have something to say, nor the internal debates that might have resulted within the Jewish nation. That can't happen either. The Torah was given in a totally neutral location. Everybody can lay claim to it, and no one can lay claim to it exclusively. That is the nature of Torah and wisdom, by the way. And that's why the um, Judaism, that which is contained in the Torah, is not exclusive to Jews. We don't encourage conversion, but we welcome converts. It's mentioned many times in the Torah. Why? Because whoever wants to say the Torah was meant just as much for me as it was for you guys, God doesn't say, no, no, it was only meant for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's meant for anyone who wants to lay claim to it. So don't say you were excluded, nor should you think that because you're the one who received it, that that makes you special. You're a chosen nation if you choose yourself. If you're the one to take possession of it, how do you take possession of it? The best way of that happening is if it's Bamidbar Sinai in a Makom Hefker. Let's look at the Alexander Rebbe. This is source number 10. So much to think about. Kasher ha'adam tzamem od lamayim. When somebody is extremely thirsty for water. And suddenly he looks up and he sees there's a well of fresh, beautiful spring water right in front of him and he drinks. He thinks to himself, isn't that amazing what God did for me? Here I am, I was so thirsty and I just climbed over the hill and there was a well and I could drink. Isn't that amazing? You're so thankful because you were so thirsty. Now you've quenched your thirst and you weren't expecting it. The whole point is that there was no effort on your part in order for you to quench your thirst. No effort at all. Ken. If a person realizes you're never going to be able to gain Torah information, how are you going to gain Torah information? How are, you, how are we able to access this information? What's the difference between you and a chimpanzee? It's a very important question, by the way. What is the difference between you and a chimpanzee? Not very much, but less than 1% of DNA, or 2%, whatever it is. It's a very small amount, right? What's the difference? The difference is, I can study Torah, and he can't. That's all the difference that you need. Are you thanking Hashem for the fact that you're not a chimpanzee because you can study Torah? You can give a dafyomi shit to a chimpanzee every day, and it won't be any use to them. doesn't matter how much dafyomi you teach them, they still won't be able to learn it. And you can study Gemara, you can study Chumash, and you can study Midrash, and you really get it, and it goes into your head. It's like the well that just suddenly appeared out of nowhere, and you were thirsty, and then you got the water. So where did that water come from? Did you make it? No, there was no effort on your part. It's a gift from God. The Torah, knowledge, wisdom is a gift from God. How many people realize that? How many people are really, you know, we think, oh, I swatted so hard, I studied for this exam, and that's what, no, no, wait one second. You should know the chimpanzee could study for an exam for three months. They still wouldn't get, a, they wouldn't get an F grade, right? Why not? Because God gave you a gift. You're not just a sentient animal. You're an intelligent animal. And more than that, you have a spiritual side to you that has a sensitivity to that which the Torah has to give you, both in intellectual terms and in spiritual terms. Wow, it's a gift, says the Alexander Rebbe. Don't reject that. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. 
רק מה שחננו השם מתנת חינם הוא הדעת, אבל מצד עצמו אין לו כלום. It's just about your physical being. Hello, Mr. Chimpanzee or Mrs. Chimpanzee. What do you have to gain? Nothing. And in that way, you will never take excessive pride in your Torah knowledge. When you recognize it's a gift. When you recognize it's a gift, that only happens to a midbar. That's the point of a midbar. Whatever you put there was never there before. It's just a soundstage. There's zero there. Whatever you put in, that is more than it was, that was there before. And finally, this piece by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which I've referred to, and which that second paragraph of, of Bol's description of the Sahara Desert is so relevant. So this is very powerful. It says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Parshat Bamidbar, Nikret Tamid לפני חג השבועות. When does we have Parsha Bamidbar? Always before the festival of Shavuot. ועל כן, היא בגדר הכנה לקבלת התורה. We have to see this parasha, this portion of the Torah, in a sense, as a preparation, as a prep for קבלת התורה, receiving the Torah. ידוע שתוכנה של כל פרשה בתורה מרומז בשמה, that the content of every parsha in the Torah is somehow indicated, hinted at, in its name. Now we need to find some connection, some hint, some idea in the name of Bamidbar to the festival of Shavuot, Ulam. And we look at the name of the parasha, Bamidbar, the wilderness. And the wilderness of Sinai. You might think to yourself, okay, that's a nice idea. It sounds cute that the name of the parasha has somehow a connection to the, relevant to this period of the year, to this, you know, somehow we're going to find... It's the opposite, Bamidbar. Bamidbar Sinai, that's connected to the Torah. How can that be? Why? Midbar Who wants to be in a desert? I'm going to ask you, where are you going on vacation in the summer? Where are you going on vacation in the summer? So somebody might say, I don't know, I'm going to Zion National Park. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to Hawaii. I'm going to Israel. I'm going to South America. I'm going to climb up... Uh, uh, Machu Picchu, whatever it is you're going to say. No, I've never heard someone saying, where are you going, where are you going for your uh, vacation? The Sahara Desert. You ever heard anyone say that? Never heard anyone say, I'm going to the Sahara. I'm going to spend four weeks in the Sahara Desert. That doesn't happen. Why? It's not a place that people really want to go to. I mean, it looks beautiful in a postcard, maybe. You know, you watch Lawrence of Arabia. That's, that looks a lot of fun because it's in a movie. You didn't have to be there. But... It's certainly not a place you want to visit on vacation. It's not a place where people, there's, there's settlements of people, where people live. It doesn't, there, nothing grows there, nothing's there. You, it's not a place which lends itself to, uh, to any kind of human stimulation of the kind that we want. What about the word Sinai? The word Sinai is not a nice word. It's a word that connotes hatred. Sin'ah, Sinai, it's the same word. It doesn't matter. It sounds the same. And because it sounds the same, Chazal say, Why was Sinai Desert called with this name Sinai? Because the world ended up hating Sinai. There's somehow... This, the fact that we receive the Torah, it sounds the same. I agree, it's not the same. It's an, yes, of course. So asks the Lubavitcher Rebbe in this piece, how is it that Midbar and Sinai are suitable prep words for Kabbalat Torah, which we're going to experience on Shavuot, starting on Saturday night. 
So you need to really understand this in a deeper way. Once you get a true appreciation of the conditions which are required for the study of Torah, you'll understand why Midbar and Sinai are appropriate words in this lead-up to Shavuot. You need to understand that in order to truly gain Torah knowledge, you need to Remove all distractions of worldly affairs. So that you are not distracted from the main event, from that which you ought to be focused on, which is the study in the involvement uh, of Torah in Torah. Adam Torah. Now he says something fascinating. Somebody who wants to study Torah, Tzarik Lageshet Eleha, you need to empty your mind of any preconceptions and ideas. You ever heard, we mentioned before, Greek philosophy. I've spoken it many times before as well. What is, what is the concept of Greek philosophy? You study the Talmud, you'll know, you know what Greek philosophy is, even though it never really mentions it, because it uses the same method. The method of Greek philosophy is... You, uh, you come to any subject matter without preconceptions. For example, they would sit down in the school of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle and they would say, is it okay to kill babies? Your automatic instinctive reaction is, no, 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 it's murder. No, no. Forget what your instincts are. Forget what your parents told you or what you learned at school or what you think is right and wrong. Objectively speaking, is it correct to kill a baby? Is a baby a human being or is it not a human being? Now, in this country, it's a very big deal, right? We've just, we've got the, the abortion debate has erupted again. And the debate, now you can use sources and proofs and ideas, concepts, whatever you want. But you come to the table without a preconceived answer. It's my argument as to why I don't believe Maimonides was actually a philosopher. Because he came, when he wrote Morin of Uchim, he wasn't writing in the style of a Greek philosopher, he was writing because he was defending the Torah against philosophy, using philosophical arguments that pre-existed him in order to find a foundation, a solid foundation for Torah ideas. But that's not philosophy. Philosophy is we free our minds of any preconceptions. Says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, if you want to study Torah, you need to study it as if it's fresh, as if it's the first time you've ever seen it, without coming to the table with preconceived notions as to what it should say, or what you think. It's not about you, it's about what's there, and then you're going to try and find the truth on that basis. And he says something even more fascinating. He says the... Um, Clearing your mind of all preconceptions is not just about clearing your mind of the things which are worldly matters or, you know, scientific or whatever those things are. Not just about that. You've, you've studied, you've learned Afyaimi, right? You've studied all 2,711 pages of the Talmud. Now you want to study, you want to go back to the beginning of Barachot. You know how you come back to the beginning of Brachot? Forget that you ever finished the Talmud. You've never learned a page of Talmud. You open Brachot, Dafbet, Amad Aleph, and you look at it as if you've never seen it before. Fresh, devoid of any preconceptions and information, even Torah information. That's a Midbar. That's what he's saying. Amnam matarat halimud hi lilmod ulalamed. What is the study of Torah? To learn it and to teach it. Vigam kol chelkei Torah kshurim vachuzim zebazeh. Every part of the Torah is connected one to one to the other. Aval kol ele hem shlav sheni balimud. You should know that's a second tier of learning. The first tier of learning is to come to it as if you've never seen it before. Only once you've studied it in and of itself you start bringing outside things. The same as philosophy. First come to it without preconceptions. Now you say, but there is logic to this or is logic to that. Obviously, you're going to feed into the discussion things that you know, things that you understand. But initially, look at it with a fresh mind. The ilu kasher ha'adam nigash el alimud, when you come to study, alav lehitrakez, 
אף ורק בללמוד ולנתק את תשומת ליבו גם מהללמד ומשאר חלקי התורה. The point is, in order to learn, come to it like a midbar, a midbar hefker. Midbar hefker even of any, any Torah. Come to it totally fresh, open. The glass has to be empty. Gishazu ba'lidei bitui b'midbar. Midbar eno makom yishuv. It's not a place where anything can dwell. Nothing dwells there. There's nothing there. En bo b'nei adam acherim velo shum davar sheyachol la'asiach et dat... There's no other person there who can distract you, no other things there that can distract you. You're coming on a, on a mission, of, a pure mission, to gain knowledge as if it's new knowledge, knowledge you've never had before. That's how you have to study the Torah, fresh. The only thing you have when you're studying Daf Bet Amud Aleph in Brachot is that Daf in front of you. Nothing else. In fact, I heard many, many years ago from one of my teachers that there was a discussion when Sonsino, the Italian printer, published the Gemara for the first time and he put Tosafot on the side of the Gemara that there were complaints. People said, no, 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 what you're putting it on the side, that's going to be a distraction. People are going to study, they're going to look at the Gemara. Okay, Rashi is a perush, he's just, he's feeding into the understanding of the actual Gemara, but Tosafot is already taking issue with Rashi, that's a distraction. Now we all study today, we all study Gemara Rashi Tosafot, the first things we look at, it's automatic to us. Imagine that, Gemara itself, You can be distracted from it by studying Tosafot because that's not pure anymore. That's already a distraction. Come to the Gemaraz if you've never seen it before. When you're in the Midbar and you're by yourself, it's not enough. It's not enough just to be in the Midbar. You also have to have the Sinai, the hatred. What for? It's not enough that you remove yourself from the distractions of the world when you study Torah. You have to kind of hate them. You have to kind of reject them. You have to, like, you have to sh shake them off. I don't want them because they're going to distract me. I'm not going to have this pure knowledge if I'm, I'm bringing so much baggage to the table. You have to think to yourself, I'm now studying Torah. I don't want to allow anything to distract me until I understand what's on the page. Then you can bring those things. But initially, you've got to be a midbar, Sinai. You should know that having those things and bringing them to the, to the table diminishes the purity of the light of Torah. That's what it does. Later on, once that you, that you have that light already, then you can consider those other aspects. If that's the way you study Torah, what will happen? First, you have to be a learner. In order to be a teacher, you have to be a learner. In order to be a learner, you have to come to the, the learning part, the studying part, without any distractions. And then you, you can achieve the lalamed aspect, the teaching aspect. And in fact, it will give you a much firmer foundation in all other aspects of your worldly life, not just in Torah. The Torah is simply the, the fundament of human life, of our, our existence as Jews within Judaism, in order to have the Torah, get rid of everything else. Then gain the Torah, then you can gain everything else. You can become the teacher and you can live in the world. You should know that the purpose of Torah is not that you should hate the world or be divorced from reality. That's not the purpose at all. Through the Torah, you will know that which is required and that which isn't required, that which is wanted and that which is to be rejected. Sometimes you can take those things which you consider 
important to reject and you can rescue them. This is a very Hasidic idea. Through a purity in the knowledge of Torah, through gaining Torah in this Midbar Sinai sense, you can now look at the world in a much broader perspective. You can say, I'm comfortable with these aspects of the world, even if they're not perfect, because I can rescue them. I can bring them into the tent. And you'll discover that these things are not negative at all, but we can um, enhance the Torah, or we can enhance them through in, um, inserting Torah into them. Somehow we can, they, they have a purpose in this world that we didn't see before we gain this pure Torah knowledge and that's the way we have to approach Torah until such time as we have reached the final stage of human existence which is the coming of the Messiah and the rebuilding of the temple which we all pray for but in this imperfect world don't allow the world to intrude in order to gain Torah knowledge. Only once we have gained it through that Midbar Sinai sense are we then able to live in the world and use it to the best of our ability and for its own best. We'll leave it here.